Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I can't believe it's October already. I don't know if you feel the same as I do, but wow, it's October, and there's only three months remaining in 2022. That is crazy. Now, today I'm traveling to Omaha, Nebraska, where tomorrow I'll be conducting day one of the Grading from the Inside Out virtual training, followed by a face-to-face training on Wednesday. And after that, I'll be off to upstate New York in Windsor and Albany for a full-day session on Friday and then a morning session on Saturday before heading home on Saturday afternoon. Now, a few reminders as we get going today, of course. I just mentioned the Grading from the Inside Out two-day virtual training, October 4th. So day one will be tomorrow. Day two will be a week from tomorrow on October 11th. There's still time to register if you're interested, but if that doesn't work for you, the training will be face-to-face in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. Also a reminder, the Teach Better Conference is coming up this month, Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Use the code SHIMMER22 for a discount on your registration. And the Michigan Assessment Consortium, that three-hour webinar, it's open to folks outside of Michigan. So if you're interested in that three-hour webinar focusing on standards-based learning, uh, you can register for that. There's links in the show notes for all of those events, so you can follow those uh, and join those if you so choose. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A uh, big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Appreciate you joining in. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. Of course, I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Dr. John Hattie. John is, of course, known for his visible learning research, so we dig into that. Now, listeners, this will be part one of two, so John will be my guest next week as well. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to revisit the topic of student accountability and talk about why it's time to push back against those who push back and how you might be able to approach that. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with John Hattie is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a few thoughts about this trend, or this so-called trend called quiet quitting. Now, why did I say so-called? Well, it's because not everyone agrees that this is actually a thing. In a September 16th article for The Atlantic, Derek Thompson argues, quote, what people are now calling quiet quitting was in previous decades simply known as having a job, end quote. The headline for the article Quiet quitting is a fake trend. Now, I'm not going going to go over the entire article here, but there are a couple of points that he makes in the article that I think are important. He says, quiet quitters are allegedly an epidemic that is allegedly changing the workplace and allegedly making bosses very mad. He states that he uses the word allegedly because according to Thompson, statistically speaking, quiet quitting is not actually a thing, or at least it's not a new thing. Here's a few more nuggets from the article. Thompson writes, Every year, Gallup asks thousands of American workers about their commitment to their job. From 2010 to 2020, engagement slowly increased. In 2022, it declined. Engagement at work declined so slightly that it's still higher than it was in any year from 2000 to 2014. Let me read that again. In 2022, Engagement at work declined so slightly that it's still higher than it was in any year from 2000 to 2014. He also goes on to say, as a workplace phenomenon, workers' workers mild disengagement is about as novel as cubicles, lunch breaks, and bleary-eyed colleagues stopping by your workstation to mutter Mondays. Am I right? Again, he says, what the kids are now calling quiet quitting was in previous and simpler times simply known as having a job. So there is no universal agreement on whether it's a thing or not. But let's just say, for the sake of this open, let's just assume it is a thing, because many assert that it is a thing. Quiet quitting, according to Jim Harder's Gallup article from September 6th, is the idea spreading virally on social media that millions of people are not going above and beyond at work, and they're just meeting the job description. And the suspicion, according to some industry experts, is that this could get worse. Now, this is a problem because... As Harder Harder writes, this is a problem because most jobs today require some level of extra effort to collaborate with your workers, coworkers, and meet customer needs. So if it is a trend, if it is real, well, honestly, I don't get it. But you might be a little bit surprised at what I don't get or the angle I'm about to take on this. So before you at me, 
remember that I told you not to, but some of you might, before you at me, I'm not at all for anyone being taken advantage of at work. When a supervisor or a boss or principal superintendent expects you to go above and beyond your job description, then they are taking advantage of you unless there's compensation involved. This is especially true for hourly employees at any job where you're paid for the process of working, right? When you're a salaried employee, you're paid for the outcome, not the process of working. You're, you're paid to get the job done. So when I hear educators say, why should I have to give up my weekends and work? I have a life. I have a family. I have things to do. I agree with you. You do. You're not required to work on weekends. You're just required to do your job. The outcome. I know when I was a classroom teacher, if I'd have stayed at work every night until, say, 5 o'clock, or if, like if I treated my job as an 8 to 5 or a 7 to 4, because I know some people like to get to school, get to work really early, so maybe treat it as whatever. But if I had done that, like an 8 to 5 or a 7 to 4 kind of job, I don't actually think I would have taken a lot home with me or worked a lot on weekends. I probably would have worked a little bit, but but I don't think I would have taken as much home. Now, I didn't treat my job like that because I coached. And so when I was coaching after school, um, I had to make up the time somehow, right? And I know everyone's job is different, so I'm probably overgeneralizing here, but I feel like I made choices that caused me to work evenings and weekends. Again, I know not every school is the same, not every job is the same, so I get it. There are exceptions for sure, but I think in most cases you can say that if you treated your job as an 8 to 5 or, or, or a 7 to 4 or something like that, then I, I think you you could, you could probably wouldn't have to take very much home. So I, I'm, I'm not for anybody being taken advantage of at work. But, but my question or my, my wondering is actually for the younger generation. Why in the world would you choose to go down this path of quiet quitting? It's such a short-sighted way to cut off potential opportunities for promotion and growth. So if this really is a trend, and I were of the younger generation, I would be doing the exact opposite. I would be going the extra mile. I would be putting in the extra effort. I would be meeting the customer's needs. And in this case, we, you know, students and families, I would be going above and beyond. Again, I am not for any boss asking employees to go above and beyond their job description without compensation. Money, time, access to something, there has to be some compensation for that. But if you want to advance, get promoted, or have opportunities come your way, you need to stand out. Going the extra mile is how you're going to stand out. Now, some people will push back on what I just said there and say, shouldn't being good at my current job be enough to get my promotion? I mean, sure, I guess so. If you were the only applicant, then maybe. But other than the odd occasion, you're competing with others to get the job and you have to find a way to separate yourself from them. Somebody asks you like, why do you think we should hire you for the job? Well, you should hire me because I did my job. Nothing more, nothing less. I clocked in, I clocked out, I moved on. Yeah, that'll work. When you get promoted, think about it this way. When you get promoted, your employer is taking a chance on you. Now, if you've done the job elsewhere, so if you have been a department chair somewhere or you were an assistant principal or something like that, then it isn't really a promotion. I mean, it could be if it's a bigger school or something like that, but do you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not really a promotion. A real promotion is when you step out of one role and you step up into another role. You got to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, why would somebody hire me instead of someone else? They are literally taking a chance on you. They've seen you do your current job, but they have no evidence that you would be any good at this new one. They have to take all of the evidence they have from the interview questions that you answer, all the evidence they have of you in your current job, and they need to take a chance and sort of guess that you're going to be effective at this new job. They're taking a chance. They do not have to give you the promotion. They don't have to hire you. You have to stand out. You have to make a name for yourself. And for me, you do that by going the extra mile. Now, listen, again, please don't get caught up in this hyperbolic vortex. I'm not saying you should work yourself into exhaustion where your physical and mental health is significantly suffering. I'm not saying you shouldn't have fun and enjoy your life. I'm not saying you should have a singular focus that you end up ignoring the important people in your life like your family and significant others and all of that. And I'm not saying you should be voluntold to go above and beyond. But honestly, if I were in my 20s and 30s right now, I'd be all, hey man, you want to quiet quit? Be my guest. 
because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work my ass off and lay a foundation for the rest of my life. Your 20s and 30s are where you work your ass off to reap the rewards that come in your 40s and 50s professionally. Now, there are, of course, no guarantees, but that's my view of it. And I know not everyone holds that view. But I kind of feel like I'm experiencing it now. I'm about, uh, in November, I turned 55. Now, don't get me wrong. I still work my ass off. Okay, books don't write themselves, and the work is challenging, a lot of travel, all the stuff I do. I'm not complaining about it, but it's, you know, I work my ass off. But all of the work I'm doing now is not the result of me suddenly deciding to do what I'm doing. My now is the result of choices I made almost 20 years ago when I immersed myself, for example, in this assessment work and began to develop some level of expertise. And look, I, I'm not saying I'm the most successful person out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this is not some sort of backhanded flex like, look at me and I'm so successful. I'm just telling you how I approached my career. I'm not trying to, to, to say that because there's a lot of people out there more, way more successful than I am. All I'm saying is that our professional journeys often have a delayed reaction, a delayed effect. Investing now will pay off, maybe not immediately, but down the road you'll position yourself in the most favorable light. If quiet quitting is a thing, and if it's your thing, then you know what? Go for it. You know, to each his own. Have at it. I just know if I was in my 20s and 30s right now, I wouldn't do it. And I'd be actually secretly be thrilled that more of my contemporaries were doing the bare minimum at work because all that would mean is better odds for me to fulfill my professional goals in the future. You want to clear the way for me? You want to quiet quit? Be my guest. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. John Hattie, a man who really does need no introduction, but I'm going to do a quick one anyway. Uh, John is Emeritus Laureate Professor at Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. He's the chair of the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leaders, and of course, the director of the Hattie Family Foundation. His visible learning research is based on a quarter billion students, and he continues to update that research every year. He has published and presented over a thousand papers and supervised 200 thesis students and 60 books, including 24 on visible learning alone. So John, I can't thank you enough for being here and joining me today on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Tom, looking forward to this. Much appreciated. Uh, certainly, as I said before, it's great to meet you. Uh, you've certainly had a global impact on education. I don't know an educator anywhere that does not know the name John Hattie. Um, thrilled to have you here. Uh, and listeners, just for your information, this is going to be a two-part episode. So John will be with us this week, and he'll join us next week as well for part two. So as we dig into part one today, John, before we dig into the substance of our conversation, I'm hoping you can highlight for us the journey of your career. Uh, I think most educators would be, you know, would have come to know you either through your 2007 article, The Power of Feedback, that you wrote with Helen Timperley, or, of course, the visible learning research and the subsequent public, uh, publications that are associated with that work. But can you take us back to the beginning of your career uh, and maybe just highlight for us the professional journey, the kind of the arc of your career and how you ended up here today? Well, the, the irony, Tom, is that the whole visible learning work is... Um has been a hobby. It hasn't been my career until recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually started uh, doing an apprenticeship as a painter and paper hanger. Um, okay. I didn't have many skills in that. And so after a while, I realized that um, I needed some other way of getting out of my little country town. So they paid you to um, train as a teacher. So I applied and became, went to teacher's college. Um, at the same time, I went to university. They were separate in those days. Uh, I did teach in a primary school for a year and in the high school for um, three quarters of a year. Then went on to my PhD in measurement and statistics. Yeah. Um, and that my whole career was, uh, in, until the last 10 years, was in measurement statistics. I was at one time the president of the International Test Commission. I had a lovely life and career around that whole notion of uh, measurement and statistics, research design. I taught those courses, Tom, that you all love to do in research design and statistics, right? <laughs> of course. And, and that was my career and my hobby um, was the meta-analysis. Um, it started my first uh, conference, education conference I went to was 1976, where Jen Glass introduced the idea. And obviously being in the measurement area, I was fascinated. 
the best way to learn about it was to do one. So we did one, then we did another one and another one. And it was that one day when I thought, why couldn't I build on what other meta-analyses people are doing? And as the kind of outsider in education and the measurement area, it, it fascinated me that everyone I met could tell me exactly what was truth. They knew what made a difference to kids learning. They knew what it did to improve achievement. And they were all different. Right. Every one of my academic friends, their yeah. passion was the answer. Every teacher I met, watch me. And they vary so dramatically. And it, it kind of was amusing, but fascinating. And I thought, could I actually address this problem by doing a meta-analysis of meta-analyses to say, is this just an art or is this something that we do know? Are the things that work best? And in the 1970s and 80s, there was a whole lot of debate about what works. And it's still out there. And you know, my answer is everything. everything. It's the wrong question. And so could I change the question to what works best? And that's when I put it all together in the, the 1990s that I, I only had about 150 meta-analyses and it wasn't enough. There were too big a gaps. Right. So I sat on it for about 10 years and started building and adding to the meta-analyses. And then I thought, well, maybe I should sit down and get this out of my head and move on back to my measurement world. But it took me about six or seven years to write the book because I couldn't, I struggled to work out what the links were, what was the big messages between those influences that were very high and those that were lower. And then I wrote a version, I have to say, Tom, I was so proud of it. It was 500 pages of beautiful, resplendent statistics, graphs, interactions, regressions, hyperlinear models, you name it. And I asked my wife to read it um, after I'd finished it with great pride. And she said, and which two people in the world have you written this for? <laughs> and so she actually invented the barometer that was in the book to said, you've got to have more of a flow through. And so I threw that version away, literally threw it away and started yeah. again. And you can hear it, it was a labor of love and I had no pressure on me because it wasn't my research area. So that's how it came to be. Oh, wow. That's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, but I mean, the, the, the work is so influential and so global. And I did want to ask you about the, the motivation, like what was the underlying motivation or drive, but you talked about how everybody had an answer for what works with kids and everybody's passion was the answer. Just how convenient that what I'm passionate about and what I'm an expert in happens to be the best way to improve learning. But so I want to go in a different direction with this question. I want to ask you, as you were you know, as the idea, at, you know, the longevity of the idea and you began to put it together sort of post 90s, as you began to put it to uh, together, um, did you know, did you have a suspicion that uh, this was going to be as impactful as it has become? Like, did you did you look at it and say um, you had a moment where you thought, oh, this is huge? Or did that kind of grow organically? Did it kind of sort of just one layer after another kind of reveal itself? Or was there kind of a moment where you thought, I'm on to something here? Tom, it was my 10th book. What happened okay. to the other nine? Yeah, good question. <laughs> and in academia, like, it, as the publishers tell me, you know, if your book sells two to 300, you've, you recoup the, the cost for the publisher and you make them a profit. And yeah. so I won't tell you, um, like one of the books, one of the very first books I wrote, I was very proud of the fact that it was um, available for 20 years after it was published mm -hmm. until I found out the publisher had printed 200 copies and couldn't sell them. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought this book would be a, another one that I was getting it out of my system and saying, let's you know, take all this work I've been doing and put it into a book, get it out so I could move on. Cause I had plans for other books in the measurement area. And so no, I had no idea that um, it would take off like it has. Like they've sold, some of them have sold over a million copies, which is very rare in academia oh, and particularly yeah. visible learning, which has got you know, not as much numbers as the previous um, version that got pulped, but it, it has absolutely surprised me and I'm kind of humbled that it has done so well. Uh, but no, I had no anticipation. Yeah, when it first came out, you couldn't go into any school, at least any school that I went to in North America and my school district around, you'd see people carrying the white book, the white cover uh, when it was first published. And certainly it was, uh, you know, it had a massive impact on people. But of course, 
you know, anything this prominent, anything that gets into sort of the education sphere that has this big an impact is not going to be without its critics. And I think one of the elephants in the room is that, of course, your work has not been immune to that. And, and we know that there have been some very pointed criticisms and, and so by, by some very high profile educators. And I'm not going to name them and I'm not going to go through what they've said. I'm not going to get to that sort of level of granularity. But I want to ask you generally, you know the criticisms, you know what's out there. Where are they getting it wrong? Like, where do you think the critics are either misunderstanding uh, or, or just plain getting it wrong when it comes to the research that you're sharing with the world? Look, in academia, it's all about critique. Yeah. And I have the world's best critics, and that is just an unbelievable pleasure. Yeah. Uh, you could live your whole life as an academic and no one could care. The fact that they criticize me is, 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 is the essence of what we do. And I have to say, Tom, in some cases, I've learned a hang of a lot from those criticisms. Okay. Um, the good news is uh, you know, visible learning. The white book is now 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just finished, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a sequel that will come out next year that updates it all. And you'll see in there that I do talk about the critics and I do talk about what I've learned and what I haven't learned. Um, about three years ago, a colleague, Aaron Hamilton, and I, we said, let's, let's have a search. And we searched for every criticism we could find. And we got up to about 100 different criticisms. And we wrote this article, which is a free on the web if anyone wants to find it, um, where we look at the criticism. Now, a lot of the criticisms were about the concept of meta-analysis. Right. Some people don't like it. Um, some people have some troubles with it. And, and, and it's like all methods. It's a method. And you can do it well. You can do it poorly. And you can criticize the poor meta-analyses. But yeah. then when I looked at all the criticisms of my work, 80-something uh, percent of them were about the rankings. And the argument is you can't rank these influences. Um, you can't uh, – they overlap, which proves to me that those critics have never opened the book because right. the whole book is about the overlap. And right. they're right. And it is the case about five or six years ago I stopped releasing the rankings and said let's get away from that criticism. They were right. People misinterpreted them. People mm-hmm. took stuff – at the top and said, I'm going to do that and not do stuff at the bottom. Some of that stuff at the bottom, we should worry dramatically about and try to get right. And if you take the stuff at the top and you implement it poorly, you're not going to get those effects. And so, yes, I do hear the criticisms of some of those notions. Like I, I don't agree when people say you have to dismiss the whole thing because it's based on meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is just a method of synthesizing literature. The reason it takes me so long to write these things, like it's taken me five to six years to write the sequel, to get that story right, to get that overlap, to get that interpretation. Um, And so I do welcome the critics. Um, I learned many years ago from my good friend, Murray Clay, that you don't respond to them and get into a turf war about it. You respect them. Um, Some of them I struggle with because they've so, so get it wrong. Um, And some of their criticism, like one guy once said, oh, he uses um, gender effects, males and females, and he doesn't acknowledge whether it's males or females at the high and the bottom. Well, he never opened the book because I actually do address that. And so some of those are very frustrating, but you just say, hey, people make mistakes. But I have to say that I welcome the criticism. Uh, I really do. And, and, and in the sequel, I talk about those things I've learned over the last 14 years. So bring it on. <laughs> I think that, you know, I have to say that it's most impressive, I think, to have the professional strength to to learn from the criticisms. We we all can learn a lesson from that, John, uh, for sure. Can I, can I go on a bit of a tangent here? Because I think maybe some listening to the podcast may not be crystal clear on what it, what is a meta-analysis and what is the threshold? Because there are times where I've heard or I've read research where they said this is a meta-analysis and others say, well, it's not really a meta-analysis. So first question, what is a meta-analysis? Just to clarify that for listeners. And two, what is the threshold that allows a study of studies to be kind of that meta-analysis? What, what was it? What, how does that all work? Well, I'm going to go out there, Tom, because I'm interested in reciprocal teaching. Okay. And I'm going to do a study um, on 10 classes and publish it. And then someone else comes along in, in, um, in Germany and does a study on reciprocal learning in high school and publishes it. Someone in America does a study on reciprocal and so on. And what I do is, no, correction, what a meta-analysis does is it takes those many studies and asks two primary questions. The first question is, when I put them all together and calculate the effect size, which is how big is the effect? 
It's kind of like a Richter scale and earthquakes. How big is the effect? Right. And I average all those. I say, well, on average, reciprocal teaching has a 0.6 effect. Now, the second thing, and the one that's often forgotten, is then you ask, what are the kind of factors that might influence that average of 0.6? Like, is it higher in primary school than in high school? Is it higher for males and females? Is it higher in the US compared to Australia? Now, in the jargon, that's called the moderators. And that's a really critical part of what we do in a meta-analysis. And so what I do is I code the meta-analysis. So I'm, in a sense, doing distance research. I'm even further away from the kids. Um, and I ask the same things. What's the overall effect? Well, it turns out to be 0.4. And that hasn't changed for the last 30 years. But my fascination are those moderators. And that's why it takes so much more time. And going back to the critics, some of the critics, they're correct. If people just look at the average and don't look at the moderators, they can get a, a misleading story. Now, here's the fascination, Tom. It's very hard to find moderators that make a difference. Right. Doesn't mean to say we shouldn't keep looking for them, but what works best tend to work best with all kids. And that upsets a lot of people, particularly some with a passion who believes it's um, like take, take the uh, problem-based learning people. I constantly get emails from them about how wrong I am. And sometimes they can be quite abusive. Sometimes they want to have a really good conversation. Well, my argument is, yeah, it has a very low effect, but we need to understand why. And that's where the moderators are fascinating. And it turns out, like, take, for instance, the best case is medical school. Problem-based learning in first-year medical school has a zero to negative effect. Problem-based learning in fourth-year medicine has an effect size of 0.5. Yeah. That helped me understand. If you introduce problem-based uh, problem learning before the kids have the content, it doesn't work as well. Right. And so this right. is where those moderators really are important. And this is what I spend all my time trying to understand those effects. So a meta-analysis is just a statistical way of working out how big the effect is and then accumulated across studies. Yeah. Well, what happened when Gene Glass introduced it the old traditional reviews where people got articles together, there was so much bias. Like a person who liked reciprocal learning read all the literature and said, isn't it wonderful? A person yeah. who didn't like reciprocal teaching read the same literature and said, isn't it terrible? And that's what he wanted to overcome, that bias. Right. That bias, yeah. Um, is there a threshold, again, like the the idea that it, how large the sample size, how large does a study need to be to be a meta-analysis? Well, Believe it or not, some people do meta-analyses on three or four articles, and that just does not make sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, if you take the reciprocal teaching and have three articles, it just doesn't make sense. That, that effect is going to bounce around a dramatic amount. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the things I do introduce in the sequel is this index I call the robustness index, which takes into account how many meta-analyses. Like if you have a meta-analysis based on 500 studies and another one based on three studies, they're quite different in how robust they are. So I take into account the number of meta-analyses on this topic, the number of studies, the number of effects, the estimated number of students, uh, and also an intriguing one is how many articles have to be in someone's file drawer not published to overturn the conclusion. I put them together and say, here's an index. And so it, it does a question. So there's no right answer, but I certainly, any study with less than five studies, any meta-analysis with less than five studies, I don't even look at. Right. And if it's five to 10 studies, I look very closely at how many studies to see. So there's no magic answer, but okay. you, you really got to look at um, this robustness notion across many different parameters. Yeah, I guess it's a question, just the question you have to answer is, is it an adequate sampling to give me a reasonable Correct. level of precision as we go through that? Correct. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, John. Um, and ask you to think about this. How how would John Hattie, the researcher, critique, not criticize, but how would John Hattie, the researcher, critique John Hattie's research? As you look back, is there anything you look at if you were to get into the minutiae, anything like that? How might John Hattie, the researcher, critique John Hattie's research? Well, one of the things he didn't do very well in the early days is he didn't point out that effect sizes are probability statements. Mm. People talk them as gospel, that if you do this, you'll get this effect size. They are probability. If you do this, you have the probability you'll get a higher or lower effect size, which means you have to then focus very much on your implementation. And one of the things I did get wrong and I'm still learning about, particularly as we are applying our model in many, many thousands of schools around the world, 
is that quality of implementation, that fidelity of implementation. And Tom, I find it fascinating when I ask principals, what's your model of implementation? I get answers like hope. Um, I monitor. Now, if you were in a couple of years ago, we, we researched the literature for implementation models in business and computing and in medicine. And in those areas, people say, oh, I use PRINCE2, or I use getting to outcomes, or I use this model. We don't have that kind of language. And so I underestimated um, the importance of implementation. And we've spent a lot of time in our research on that. Um, also, the other criticisms, um, <laughs> the, the white book is kind of stood in some cases by itself. As you said in the introduction, I've written, I've killed so many trees, written 28 books. I've written so many things. I present all over the place and I keep thinking, but I didn't stop in 2009. I have advanced how I think. I have modified at times. And so one of the things is, is what I try and do in the sequel to say, hey, some of the questions still need to be resolved. Like I am fascinated with some of the low effect sizes. Like take teacher subject matter knowledge. I've spent a lot of my research time and writing trying to understand why that effect is so low. I've written a, a, quite an extensive review article on class size to try and understand why it was so low. Because my fascination is explaining the low. Because if you don't explain why it's low, you don't solve the problem. I have right. never advocated that subject matter knowledge is unimportant. I've never advocated homework's unimportant. I've never advocated small class size is unimportant. I said the effects have so far, they've been low. And so a lot of my work is looking at that. So the probably the critic is I've dispersed some of my writings all over the place. Yeah. It's tough to bring it all back into one, given the effect that the white book had. But right. I've tried to do that in the sequel. We'll see how that goes. So that would be my, my major criticism is that okay. um, the effects. And that's why I switched the language to know thy impact. Yeah. I want you, Tom, to know your impact, not mm -hmm. to say I have done something from the Hattie book, therefore. Um, some right. of the stuff that's high is hard. Collective efficacy is hard work. Um, we haven't got it right yet. And I worry we won't get it right and it'll, we'll lose the opportunity to get it right as we misuse those kind of terms. Right. You made me curious with the uh, teacher uh, subject expertise or, you know, their, their competence with, within their discipline. Is, is one of the moderators for that maybe elementary versus secondary education? Is there a difference between secondary expertise and not elementary? No, there isn't. No, not at all. Like we did about four or five studies which failed miserably to explain why it was so low. And to one of my PhD students, Kelly Picker, she actually looked at the subject matter knowledge with teaching reading to five-year-olds. Yeah. And sadly, it came out the same. That doesn't really matter. But what she did, which kind of unlocks why, is because there's an interaction between your subject matter knowledge and how you teach. Like if you teach where you're one page ahead of the kids, where it's worksheets, where 90% yeah. of what you focus on is content level, then subject matter knowledge doesn't matter. But if you teach where kids ask problems where you deal with errors where you look at misunderstandings and you do corrections etc then deep subject matter knowledge matters dramatically right. but and this is why as i've argued in my political job here in australia taking teachers out of schools and giving them more maths and science doesn't change thing one iota if they go back and teach in a way that is the typical grammar of schooling so does subject matter knowledge matter yes if you teach in a particular way does right. it matter if you teach in the old grammar of schooling no won't make, won't make much of a difference at all. Um, I wanted to ask you, I think you've touched upon this. I wanted to ask you what some of the biggest misunderstandings or misuses of the visible learning research uh, that you see K-12 educators making. I think you touched upon the implementation side, but are there others, um, misunderstandings or misuses? And the misunderstandings, I want to go in both directions with that. I want to first ask you, are there, are there aspects of the research that K-12 educators are underselling and then is there maybe something about the research that there that some oversell uh, in either direction? So the misunderstandings, let's start with what are educators still underselling about the importance of the research? And then we'll go to the overselling side. What I've been doing um, with the Corwin team around the world over the last 10 years is implementing this model. We've probably implemented it with the team in around about 10,000 schools. And one of the first big misunderstandings comes when people say, I want to implement visible learning in my school. And our question back to them is, 
what is the problem to which visible learning is the answer? I am stunned at how little diagnosis we do. I am actually stunned at the number of times that policy people, uh, principals come up with the answer, implement it, and don't realize that it's, hey, they're doing pretty well that already. And it's no surprise that some of our really great teachers sit back and say, oh, here we go again, just another thing coming on, because it, they're doing good anyway. Um, and sometimes we miss that point. So I don't think that we're very good at diagnosis. And certainly in our work, what we did uh, very early on when we realized this is we introduced what we call our school capability assessment, where we work with schools to work out what, what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. Uh, one of the fascinations is that many schools, when they answer the question to us, you know, what's the problem to which visible is the answer, they tell us and they're already doing very well on it. And so you think, really, do you want another program to come in to do something that you're doing very well on? And so we show them where they're having some gaps. And you know, all of us have gaps. We show them where they're having success. And part of, I think, the, the success of our model is we start with the success that they're doing. Right. Now, here's the hard part, Tom. Attributing that success to those teachers. We are terrible at it. We, we, we say, oh, the kids are good. The resources are good. Right. The structure is good. No, 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 no. It was you. What did you do that led to success? Because we know that if we don't get that attribution to those teachers for their success, when we look at the next part where they're not doing well, they'll blame the kids. And that's not good enough. Right. We have so many, so many successful teachers. In fact, we've never worked in a school where we haven't found a pocket of success. And growing that is what's it about. And making sure that the right problems are on the table. Now, the beauty of doing the school capability assessment is it gives you a baseline. So you can say, let's see how we improve. But that's not what we often do in professional learning. We say, did you like it? Was it okay? Was it the best professional learning you've ever had? I'm not that interested in that. I'm interested in the impact on the kids right. through the eyes. So that's the big, probably the big one that we, we spent some time getting wrong before we got right. Yeah. Um, and certainly that that diagnosis of, of what is the actual problem and coming to agreement about if, if everybody in the context, in the school, in the district agrees on what issue or topics or, or you know, things need to be addressed. Once we get agreement on that, then we can target the intervention or target the, the strategies that we want to implement more, more so succinctly. More time on diagnosis, please. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that educators are kind of overselling about, are they, are they looking at it as if we just do visible learning in any way, shape or form? What would be kind of an oversell or an overreaction or something where educators are, are overselling an aspect that you look at and say, like, why are you spending so much time on that or emphasizing that or, or anything like that come to mind? I used to argue that um, I don't care about how you teach. Mm -hmm. I care about the impact of your teaching. But one of the things I'm certainly highlighting in the sequel is that we've got to get more alignment between how we teach, how we do feedback, how we um, go about doing assessments and activities with the actual cognitive complexity of what we're asking of kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes visible learning is introduced to reify what we're doing previously, which in some cases is okay. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, it's just another language that people pick up and then use and then dismiss. Like every teacher I've ever met, and I bet that you've ever met, has an incredibly strong, strong theory about teaching. Right. And it's true. If you don't acknowledge that, you're wasting your time. And some of those theories of teaching from our very high impact teachers are still bonkers, but because sometimes experts don't know why they're experts. Now, in that case, it doesn't worry me. Let them have those theories of teaching. But some theories of teaching, teachers of teachers who have very low impact are the biggest impediments. And probably the strongest one, the one that I regard against the most is labeling. It sets such low expectations. It explains the problem as the kids. And those expectations or those ways of thinking are incredibly powerful. And so right. sometimes the work doesn't attend to that. It just glosses over. And that bothers me intensely when that happens. And oh, so we need sure. to be smarter about calling that. And, and our work sometimes can be quite confrontational when we point out that it's, as we do, it's primarily about how you think. It's not what you do. I could pick up the resources of the very best teachers in the school and implement it poorly because of how I think, the judgments I make. Right. And so getting to that way of thinking. But as I commented on, 
that's the hardest thing in the business. We don't have a language of how we think. It's not a, well, that's too strong. It's hard to have a language of how we think. Right. Um, we often assume what we say is what we think. Not necessarily true. Same with kids. And, you know, in many ways, that's kind of the, the biggest criticism I get about visible learning. Yeah. Learning's not visible. Well, I called it that primarily to see if we could make it visible. Why should it be a mystery to kids? Why should it be a mystery to teachers? Why should it be a mystery to early teacher, to teacher educators? Not easy. Yeah, we have to bring it to the forefront for sure. We have to make it known. Teachers have to be able to observe it in some way, shape, or form, and and the the, the goal to make it visible for sure. But so as we finish up, yeah, yeah, go ahead. One more on that, as you say that, yeah, yeah, because you asked it of me earlier. We also have to be willing to take critique, right? And that's sometimes what some of us aren't very willing to do. While we sit there and say, "No, you don't understand my class. These are my children," right? And I think critique is the essence, and there's a skill in yeah. giving critique. But there is an openness we need to have. Like I look at medicine and I don't look at medicine to say what they do is perfect. But one thing that they do that I really love is the second opinion. Right. If you have an illness, your doctor might say to you, probably will say, I need a second opinion. That's what we need in our schools and our staff rooms as norm. I would agree with that. I think that at times we can be a uh, incredibly sensitive uh, profession. And certainly I understand that from a teacher's perspective in, in how the public often treats the education profession. But at the same time, internally, if, if we would critique ourselves, not again, not criticize, but to critique ourselves for the, for the pathway of improvement, then the outside noise will be less than because we will be tougher on ourselves than anybody outside the school could be tough on. And, I think, this, is, and I think this is where school leaders come in. Right. School leaders and the shift in visible learning is saying school leaders, yeah, achievement and raising achievement and improving uh, progress is really critical. But your fundamental role is climate and culture. Right. So that this critique happens. Yeah. Yeah. We have to create that kind of environment where uh, it's it's safe but it's open to the idea that I can always keep growing as an educator. That's for sure. So as I said, we finish up part one here, uh, John, I just want to ask you one more question before we get to the final question, which is um, any regrets in terms of when you look back, they could be small, medium, large, any regrets when you look at the way the research unfolded, uh, if you could go back, uh, any thoughts along the lines of, boy, I wish I would have. You've touched upon a few of these things, but just when it comes to the way you conducted the research or presented the research or anything like that, any any sort of small, medium, or large regrets as you think about the work that you presented to the world? Uh, at my funeral, uh, Edith P.F. is going to sing uh, No Regrets. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> no, not really. Um, you know, the, the fact that people attend to it uh, when they could have ignored it overcomes all those regrets. Are there some things I should have done better? Yeah, I should. In the visible learning book, I made a comment about the quality of studies and said, I'm not going to deal with it. And people misinterpreted that as saying I didn't care about it. Um, I probably should have got that right. Um, I I didn't talk anything in the first book about the purpose of schooling. And people Mm -hmm. criticized me on that, the sociological side of it. Yeah, I should have got that more right. one of the things that I find fascinating, and I think the biggest change in the next 10 years is the openness, opening up classrooms. We, we are very, very close, Tom, to breaking through to do automatic analysis of classroom observation. Um, it's got massive ethical and negative implications. It's got massive positive implications. That's an area of research. You know, I tried to do a synthesis of that classroom observation research and failed because of the effect size. I think that is a massive missing piece that I'm looking forward to. We spent a lot of time over the last 10 years doing our own work, uh, creating our own um, artificial intelligence app that does that. We succeeded. Um, Ironically, it's now five years old, so therefore it's old. Uh, People are really close to breaking through. I I regret that there wasn't more of that in the book. so, yeah, I do have some of those regrets, but, yeah, but my, yeah. my luxury is that I can attend to those, which right. is why I've written so much about them since. Yeah. T- tell us more about that observation, the artificial intelligence, the classroom observation. Tell us more about maybe some details about how that might look, uh, what the, the intricacies would look like. What would, that, what, that, what would that experience look like for a classroom teacher? Like the app, um, Janet, my, my uh, partner in, in, uh, developed called Visible Classroom. Is It's on an iPhone. Um, yeah. you, you got an app on the iPhone, you, you, you press it to start, you teach your class. 
at the end of the class, you turn it off, it immediately gives you a transcript that's 99.5% accurate. It gives you, um, it codes about 16 dimensions of the Daniels and Mazzano, open questions, et cetera, et cetera. It, it doesn't do any analysis from the kid's point of view because mm -hmm. picking up the sound is, is not easy and then there's ethics implications. And right. so we've done that in about 20,000 classrooms because it's all instant. Um, mm -hmm. Others are now picked on that, picked up on that and it's, they're doing a lot more artificial intelligence and we've mm -hmm. looked at that in quite depth to you know, code not only how many questions, like we know, Tom, that in a, across those 20,000 classes, 90% uh, of the time the teacher's talking. You ask between 150 to 300 questions a day, which require less than three word answers. 95% um, of the feedback you give is about the content and the facts. Now that's the norm, you know, there's variation in that. Um, and that's the typical grammar school and, and others have known that for many years, but we can now do it instantly. Now, can you imagine if we start can build on that, um, you can come up with some really fascinating questions. And one of my colleagues has been doing another app um, where he's got the kids involved. Now, it's got big problems. He's actually doing it in a country, which you can guess, in, in China, where the big problem he's got is the parents want access to find out whether their kids got appropriate attention from the teacher that day. So you know, it's, got, it's got some interesting sidelines that we had. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, that is going to be an issue. But the, the notion of um, and you know, some states that we have worked in won't allow us to use it because the union has insisted that we'll have evidence of incompetence. Now, right. yes, we do. And we've seen some um, really, really bad teaching. But our whole aim has been, how do you improve it? Right. Um, so, yeah, it's got some ups and downs. But I think that's right. going to be the big breakthrough. And yeah, we do need to understand better about how this is implemented in the classroom. The teacher needs to understand. And it's like one of the studies we did was we, we asked the question, which kids, how many kids on any day in your class does no one initiate a conversation with? No teacher, no kid. And it turns out it's one in five. And when we ask the teachers, which of those kids, they don't get it right at all. But here's the good news. When we show them those 20% of kids, the very next day, they initiate a conversation. Right. Their heart's in the right place. And yeah. so how can we use that kind of modeling of in-classroom to help improve the experience of the learning for the students? I think it's yeah. very exciting, but I'm very cautious because it's got some downsides. Yeah, certainly the language of revealing incompetence tells you that that's a low trust environment. There's not strong relationships because it could be revealing, you know, supports or revealing pathway to improvement or, or professional growth. But Look, using I remember, that, yeah. I remember the, the teachers quite vividly that came out, yeah. you know, they, they were pretty bad and I'm talking pretty bad. Yeah. And because of what we were doing at the time, we talked to the school leader. And they worked dramatically, powerfully with those teachers and made dramatic differences in the short term. Like improving really bad is a lot easier than proving people are pretty good. Right. And, and so pointing it out to the principal and saying, well, we have a serious problem. Here's the evidence. Now, they knew, but they hit it. But yeah. when you put it on the table, when you saw the effects of having on the kids, they stood up. They made a dramatic difference. So, yeah, it can be a positive. Now, hardly any that were in this category, but those few really do need addressing and improving. Right, right. And 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 that's because ultimately it's about improving the, their, their professional competence because that's going to impact the students yes. that we know. Okay, so let's finish up part one here, John, with uh, one of the questions I ask every, everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, and you can take this in any direction you want to. It doesn't have to be about your research. It can take you just generally in terms of, of education itself. But the question is this, quite simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? I I also have a political role here in Australia. I have my research role. Um, what stuns me, Tom, is how our whole discipline is geared around finding problems. Now, in one sense, that's good because it's diagnosis. But we love to find problems to which we already have the answer to. I want to turn it on its head and say, why don't we look for success and scale it up? And I think I'm pretty good at searching literature. And I'm up to eight articles in the history of our discipline that's ever addressed. How do you scale up success? If you go into business, you go into any other discipline, it's the essence of their life, scaling up success. We don't think that way. And that's what worries me most. Am I going to spend my life and as the next person doing this work and others out there constantly looking for problems and saying, hey, we need to fix them. Now, 
I understand why we look for problems. Money follows problems. Money doesn't often follow success. If you can pick up and say things are working bad, you're more likely to get resources. And I think that's what drives us. But it just bothers me. And it gives us, and you hinted at it earlier, it gives us this impression that schools are terrible, that teaching is terrible, because all we talk about is that problem. We, we have a, a major debate in Australia at the moment about workload. Workload's terrible, principals are stressed. Well, that weaponizing of that problem, why would you become a teacher? Why would you become a principal? Why don't we point out that Australian teachers, yes, they're stressed. Yes, they have a high workload. But when you look at the TALUS results, 95% of them say it's a job that they feel respected in, they love and they want to do again. Principals are the best, have the best coping strategies to dealing with stress, not denying the stress. But I am saying we're pretty good at dealing with stress. But this is not talked about. And so how do you get our discipline saying, let's identify esteem, welcome, develop and improve the excellence that we have in our system and scale it up. That's what keeps me awake at night. Yeah, we have the wrong a, problem on the table. That's a that's a big one for sure. And that'd be enough to keep anyone up at night as, as well. Uh, John, thanks for being here this week. I look forward to our conversation next week uh, in part two about physical learning. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In assessment corner this week, I want to revisit the topic of student accountability, which honestly is a topic I could probably talk about every week since every week, specifically as it relates to grading reform, the topic of accountability always seems to come up. This is especially true in a secondary context. Now, if you're the one advocating for the change, there may be times where you have to go on the offensive a little bit. Not, not be offensive, but go on the offensive in that you may have to push back as much as the resistors are pushing back. Now, let's be clear. The elimination of punitive grading practices, and that is the lowering of any student's score, not because they know less, but because they haven't behaved appropriately, the elimination of punitive grading practices is necessary to ensure that what ends up on a report card or what ends up within the reporting system accurately communicates the student's level of achievement. This is not some commie liberal plot to make school easier for kids or lower expectations or coddle students through their K-12 education. That certainly makes for a convenient narrative for some, but it would be a thoroughly inaccurate description of what this work is all about. So I want to remind you of one of my favorite quotes on this topic by Sue Brookhart. Uh, she wrote in 2013 in a research synthesis, quote, validity is in question when the construct to be measured is not purely achievement, but rather some mix of achievement and non-achievement factors, end quote. So if I were to translate that into layman's terms, I would say something like accuracy is in question when what you're assessing is not purely what the student knows and can do, but rather some mix of what they know and can do and how well behaved they are. So while many who resist like to go down the road of they need to be held accountable, they need to learn about responsibility, we may need to turn the question on them and the spotlight on them, them and ask, so what you're telling me is that you're willfully prepared to distort their achievement levels because you're annoyed and they didn't behave appropriately. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, consider this scenario. And I'm only using percentage scores in this scenario to illustrate the point, okay? Student presents to you a demonstration of learning that is of an acceptable quality. So let's just say it's a 75. Again, I'm not sponsoring percentages here. I'm just using them for effect. So the quality is acceptable. You've judged the quality of the, the assignment, the work, etc. You say it's of an acceptable quality, but you have a policy of taking 10% off per day that the assignment is late. And the student submitted that demonstration to you three days late, so minus 30%. So you mean to tell me that you will examine the evidence and determine that it is of an acceptable quality, but you'll willfully enter a score in your gradebook that says it's not. Not because it's of a lesser quality, but because the student didn't hand it to you when you wanted it. So let me put this in plain language. You're telling me you know the student's demonstration meets the standard or the target to a certain degree, but you're going to enter a score that communicates that it does not. You are knowingly and intentionally going to miscommunicate the student's level of learning. What possible justification could there be for misrepresenting the student's level of achievement? I'll answer for you. There isn't one. Now, I know 
there are times when those proposing a change need to make the case for the change and articulate the why. Why is this change better? Why is it an enhancement? Why is this the way we need to go? Now, that is most certainly true when what is currently being done, the current practices, are research-supported, and what you're saying is essentially, I know the research says that, but the research also says this. So if we go in this direction, I think it's going to be an enhancement for our students, and you've got to make the case for why that's important. But when the research is not there, as is the case with punitive grading, in that there is no research that supports the generalized assertion that either penalties or zeros act as a universal motivator, when that research is not there, then I'm sorry, you don't get a free pass because your practice is simply what you've always done. I love it when people say that to me. Hey, Tom, can you show me the research on standards-based grading? I'm like, where is the research on what you're doing? You've had over 100 years of head start on traditional grading. Hey, how about one study that proves the assertions that you're trying to make? Really? We're just going to use grades and scores to coerce behavioral compliance. You're just going to manipulate students uh, to, to follow directions by threatening their scores. Is that all you got? You can't create a more engaging project that they might want to invest in. You, you can just assign whatever the hell you want and just use your positional authority to make them do it or dock them if they don't. Cool. Super inspiring. Super creative. How's that sound? Well, that's, to me what those who say, but Tom, deadlines matter, kind of sound like. It's like, but Tom, we have to address deadlines because deadlines matter. Oh, yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thanks for the tip, bro. Deadlines? Never heard of them. Good thing you were here to give me that life lesson. You understand the adult world. I don't have any clue what I've been doing for the past 54 years. Can you just for a moment fathom how arrogant and how self-absorbed someone would have to be to think that they need to provide some revelation about the real world to another highly educated, high-functioning professional adult. And don't even get me started on the expression, the real world. Long-time listeners, you've heard me rant about that many times before. Deadlines? Are those the things that, um, oh, I don't know, I use to pay my mortgage every month? Is that what those are? Okay, I think you get my point. Now, if you're proposing a change to a research-supported practice or an approach, then you most definitely need to provide the why, and you should be required to thoroughly explain why your ideas are an enhancement to what already exists. But the arrogance of those with their whole, I'm not buying it, air. I'm not asking you for buy-in to sound assessment principles or principles of measurement. They are required if there's going to be any credibility to the claim that your grades are accurate. Now, listen, I've been a little hyperbolic for sure. Obviously, you're not going to be as obnoxious as I was just a few moments ago, right, in all of the assertions I was making. Well, I mean, maybe you will. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you, you, have to, you have to do these things with a level of finesse, and you have to maintain your relationships in your schools and all of that. I get that. But my point is that instead of just sitting there, taking it constantly on the chin, Push back, push back a little and ask the resistors to defend the status quo. Ask them to tell you how a lower score for a behavioral misstep increases the accuracy and precision of our reporting on student achievement. Ask them to tell you what sound assessment practices has us assigning a score, in this case a zero, assigning a score to an assignment we have never laid eyes on. They'll say quite predictably, well, if I don't have it, it's worth nothing. So the other scores in your gradebook represent you having it, or do those scores represent quality? As my friend Leanne Young always says, and I love the way she phrases this, missing evidence is missing evidence. I mean, like I said, we need to handle this with some finesse, and we obviously have to handle this with some professionalism, and I was trying to be, you know, for effect, trying to be a little hyperbolic in, in the comments I was making. But don't be afraid to push back. If you have to justify the new and there is no research to support the status quo, then they better be able to justify the status quo. If their only defense is, well, this is how we've always done it, then I'm sorry. That's about as weak a defense as there is.
Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, of course, to check the show notes for the links in the upcoming professional learning events this fall. Next week, of course, my guest will also be Dr. John Hattie in part two of our conversation, where we get into some of the specifics of some of his findings in the visible learning research. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.